The text this morning, as always, I invite you to, to follow along in your own copy of the Scriptures. I've entitled uh, the message this morning, A Blizzard of Troubles. That expression isn't unique with me. It comes from a sermon preached over 1,600 years ago by the greatest preacher in the ancient church, St. John Chrysostom, who preached in the great cathedral in Antioch for a number of years. It is his expression as he preaches on this text. And so I've chosen that expression from a sermon, as I say, 1,600-some years ago as the title for this message. Here's the way the text reads. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, in sleepless nights, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, through the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Chrysostom is right. Paul is describing a blizzard of troubles. Many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the musical Oklahoma. And uh, maybe you can recall uh, that silly song from the opening scene of that 1943 musical, sung by Curly McLean, who is, uh, of course, the leading male character in the musical. And the refrain runs like this. If my voice were a little better, I would sing it, but you know how it goes. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling everything's going my way. That's how life works, doesn't it? Everything's going my way. Now, the song isn't connected to reality, is it? Whether it is life, it's certainly not a paradigm for Christian ministry. Based on our text, uh, Paul sang that song from Oklahoma just a little bit differently. The way Paul sang it was this, Oh, what a beautiful morning, because God's always there. Every day is new in His grace, yes. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going in the opposite direction. That's, that's Paul's version of the Oklahoma song. I mean, according to our text, that was the Apostle Paul's life experience. And for all of us here, to one degree or another, in one way or another, that is reflective of our own life experience, maybe even something you are carrying and bearing this morning. John Piper, who for many years uh, was pastor at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, I read one of his sermons on this text. 
And I was struck by these thought-provoking words. I want to read a couple paragraphs from his sermon he preached some years ago on this passage. He says this, I turn with dismay from church services that are treated like radio talk shows, where everything sounds like chipper, frisky, high-spirited chatter designed to make people feel lighthearted and playful and bouncy. He's describing many contemporary worship. I put that in quotation, services. I look at those services and I say to myself, don't you know that people are sitting out there who are dying of cancer, whose marriage is a living hell, whose children have broken their hearts, who are barely making it financially, who have just lost their job, who are lonely and frightened and misunderstood and depressed, and you are going to create, try to create an atmosphere of bouncy, chipper, frisky, lighthearted, playful worship? And of course, he continues, there will be those who will hear me say that and say, oh, so you think that what those people need is a morose, gloomy, sullen, dark, heavy atmosphere of solemnity. Piper goes on to say, no. What they need is to see and feel indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. They need to taste that these church people are not playing games here. They are not using religion as a platform for the same old hyped-up self-help that the world offers every day. They need the greatness and the grandeur of God over their heads like galaxies of hope. They need the unfathomable, crucified, and risen Christ embracing them in love with blood all over his face and hands. And they need the thousand-mile-deep rock of God's Word under their feet. That's what you and I need when we come on Sunday. You need that. I need that in all of life. The Apostle Paul needed that. I realized more and more over the years that when we all come in the door, we greet one another, how are you doing? Fine. It's a lie, of course. And so as we come into the house of the Lord, the last thing we need is a superficial, chirpy, hyped up, everybody be happy kind of thing. Let's be real about life. And what John Piper, drawing from this passage, says that the paradigm for worship is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We recognize the hurts people come with. But yet we can sing like we did this morning, rejoice, rejoice. It is well with my soul. You can sing with great joy and exuberance. Yes, there is a sorrow that's there, but there is the joy of Jesus that transcends it all and transforms it all. That's what I want you to understand. Well, in our text, Paul is obviously describing his own experience in ministry. And as you've heard me say several times in this series, and I'm sure I'll say it a number of other times, and you'll say to yourself, I've heard that before. There were those in the church in Corinth who were questioning everything about Paul. 
Is he really an apostle after all? Is he legitimate? Is he sent from the Lord? And what about his message? We're not too sure about that either. And so Paul writes this letter in response to the changing attitudes among the church he had founded in Corinth. Now, when Paul came to Corinth for the first time as a missionary, and you can read the account in the book of Acts about he came, how he came, how he planted a church in that great cosmopolitan city, God was there. God was doing some amazing things. And here's how Paul describes the believers in his first letter. Reflecting on his visit there, reflecting on those who had come to faith in Christ, reflecting on that core who had established the church by the grace of God, Paul says this beginning in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That describes what it was originally like there in Corinth. And the joy that Paul experienced and expresses in these Corinthians, you are not lacking anything. God is faithful. He'll hold you to the end. Serve with joy. Live out your faith with integrity. But since he had left, and since he had written 1 Corinthians after that, false apostles came to Corinth. And they came to Corinth saying, what Paul preached to you isn't the truth. We have the real gospel. Paul is a fraud. He's a fake. He's not a man of integrity. He's a deceiver. Our message is what you need to listen to. And sadly, there were those in the Corinthian church who said, well, maybe they're correct. Maybe Paul is a charlatan. Maybe he is a deceiver. Maybe the message that we so eagerly received is not really the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's what these newcomers are bringing. And so they called into question Paul's integrity they called into question his message and Paul's point throughout this letter is how can you truly receive the gospel because he challenges them how were you saved by faith in Christ well where did that message come I brought it to you Paul says earlier in the letter and so he in essence says to them how can you truly be saved and having received the gospel and then turn around and cast aside and reject the one who brought you the gospel you can't have it both ways, Paul says. So you notice uh, chapter 6, verse 1. We looked at this verse last week. Paul says, working together with Christ, then, we appeal to you, Corinthians, not to receive the grace of God in vain. You've accommodated these false apostles who have come. Some of you have embraced a different gospel, Paul says, and I plead with you, however the world may or may not respond to God's reconciling activity, Paul says, I plead with you that there be a clear, positive response on your part. You have been caught up into God's saving purposes. Don't let it be in vain, is what Paul says. And so Paul's purpose in this letter, as we have seen, is to complete the work of winning the Corinthians back to himself. 
Because being truly reconciled to God means being reconciled to the message and the messenger who brought the gospel in the first place. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's doing in this whole letter. The issue for Paul is not personal. He's not worried that his reputation is being trashed, and so he has to defend himself in some way. He's not trying to protect his ego. It's not because his feelings got hurt. It's not trying to get the Corinthians to like him more. The issue for him is the gospel. The issue for him is salvation through believing the message of Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen. That is what is at stake for him. The message that had been entrusted to him on the Damascus Road as Christ's ambassador. Here's the message. Don't alter it. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Take this message and proclaim it fully and faithfully. And that's what Paul had done. So that's what his concern is. Not about himself per se. He's concerned about the fact that by rejecting him, then they're turning from the truth. Turning from the gospel. And so here in this text, Paul sets forth, if I can call it this, the value center that shapes his character, that determines all of his attitudes and actions. And, and what Paul points to in this text is that the call to ministry, in his case, the call to apostleship, but I want to broaden it out. If, if you're saved, you're called to ministry, okay? So if you and I are Christians, we're called to ministry, and the call to us is to live a life that embodies what we say, that embodies what we claim to believe, that the two be in harmony, one with the other. And that's what Paul is talking about for himself, but it's true for each one of us as we serve the Lord. So I want us to work our way very briefly through this text this morning. And I want you to notice how it begins. Paul, in verse 3, says, We put no obstacles in anybody's way. It was his care and concern that nothing in his life discredit the gospel or turn people away from the truth that is in Jesus Christ. But instead, Paul says, my desire, verse 4, is we want to commend ourselves and, of course, our message in every way to you Corinthians and to everybody else. Let me just pause here for a moment. How easily we as professing Christians can discredit the gospel. Discredit the message of Christ. We can discredit Christianity in general. Yes, you and I can discredit this congregation. By living a life, because people know in town what grace is supposed to believe. But when you live a life in whatever way it is that doesn't match up with what we say we believe, everything is discredited. You are discredited. The gospel is discredited. Yeah, I knew they were all a bunch of hypocrites all along. Paul's concern here is that for himself and for us that we do not put an obstacle in the way. Whether it is unethical business dealings, breaking promises, matters of personal integrity, living a life of greed and materialism and acquisitiveness, living a life marked by sexual immorality, whatever it is, the ministry, the gospel, the Christian faith, and yes, this church is discredited when a Christian gives offense by non-unchristian conduct. And so Paul says we're very careful not to put an obstacle in anybody's way. Nobody can latch onto it and then reject the message because, well, he says this, lives like this, I'm not going to listen. 
how you and I need to be very careful about not discrediting Jesus Christ and the gospel. So commending it in every way, and I want you to notice, what was it that marked Paul's life? Because Paul lives out the cross. If you want to think of this passage this way, he was called to preach the message of the cross, and Paul, in a unique way, lived out the message of the cross, as you notice in this passage that we read this morning. What was it that marked Paul's life? Notice in verse 4, we commend ourselves in every way, how? By great endurance. By great endurance. What is endurance? Well, it's the capacity, thinking about it in the context of our text, it's the capacity to hold up uh, in the face of significant difficulties and hardships. Well, you say, that's not me. I'm kind of a weak person. Um, I can't endure much. How is it possible to endure? What I want you to understand is a believer's endurance is not grounded in who you and I are. If it's up to us to endure, I will not, you will not endure. But our endurance, the Bible says, comes when our lives are grounded in Christ and we see in front of us the hope that is guaranteed through Jesus Christ. When we look ahead, no matter what we're going through at the moment, I am in Jesus Christ. Here are the promises of God out in front of me. Every step I take, they're getting closer on the horizon. When you live that way, then there is endurance. I, I want to cite 1 Thessalonians 1.3, a church in Thessalonica that was severely persecuted. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians, I remember before God your endurance of hope. It's the same word as in our text. Your endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Thessalonians endured because their hope was in Christ and the promise of eternity. I go to prepare a place for you. I mean, all those things out in front of them, they endured knowing those things were so. And so they pressed on and Paul commends them. Same thing in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 24. Paul says, we await our adoption as sons which he describes as the redemption of our bodies. We wait for that great resurrection day when there's no more illness, crying, sorrow, death, injury. All those things are done away with. Paul says we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, namely the resurrection, that final glorious triumph. And then he says in verse 25, for in this hope we were saved. That's part of believing the message is guess what God has in store. In this hope we were saved, Paul says, And even though we don't see the final triumph right now, we know it's sure, and Paul says, and so, verse 25, we wait for it with endurance. That's how you endure. When you're grounded in Christ, and by faith, the promises of God are right out there in front of you. Promises for today, promises for tomorrow, promises for eternity. That's how you endure. And so endurance is something positive, And it's the theme for everything else that follows in this text. It's under the heading of endurance. What I want you to notice is, as Paul speaks about great endurance, he follows it up with, you'll notice, a list of nine hardships. All of them in the plural, don't miss that. And each one, and these nine, organized into three groups. 
of three items in each group. Let's notice what they are. Each one is introduced by the preposition in. A lot of our English versions think it's too repetitive and so they kind of leave the preposition out before some of these words, but it's before each one of them. Here's the first set of three. Paul speaks about his sufferings in very general terms. So he says, we commend ourselves by great endurance in what circumstances? In afflictions, in hardships, in calamities. There are a number of you who could identify with those broad, general words. Maybe even this morning. Paul experienced times of distress. He experienced times of trouble. He faced pressure. There were times where he was under duress. He found himself hemmed in. He found himself experiencing the stress of circumstances from which there seemed no escape. Some of you can identify with the word affliction. Notice it's plural. There's more than one. You can identify with the word hardships. You can identify with the word calamities. Some of you have experienced those things in some very striking ways in days past. Paul says, by the grace of God, I'm able to endure, and he uses these general terms to describe the troubles and trials of life. Then notice the second group of three. He's a little more specific. Suffering at the hands of others. Stuff people do to you. And in his case, notice the second set. In beatings in imprisonments, in riots. We commend ourselves by great endurance in the midst of beatings, imprisonments, and riots, Paul says. Just read the book of Acts, where Luke describes on Paul's missionary journeys various beatings, mob violence, imprisonments. Uh, you can recall maybe the story in Acts chapter 16 about Paul in Philippi, where he endured all three during his time there. The mob violence, the beating, Paul and Silas in prison, members singing at night, the Philippian jailer, all those things. Okay, so in one particular city, all three of those at one time. But throughout his life and ministry, Paul experienced those sorts of things. And then notice the third list of three, very striking. In labors, in sleepless nights, and in hunger. These are things Paul voluntarily embraced. The others are things that came against him. These are things that he voluntarily embraced for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, by great endurance in labors, it's a word which refers to working to the point of exhaustion in the work of the Lord. In labors, in sleepless nights, went without sleep. Sometimes he had to travel. Sometimes there were concerns on his heart where he couldn't sleep. And in hunger, there were times he skipped meals. Whatever it took to advance the gospel, he did it. Talk about living out the message of the gospel. And so whatever it took to call people to Christ, whatever it took to get to the next city, whatever it took to disciple believers, he did it with little regard for his own well-being. That's the point that Paul's making here. And he endured it all. Why? Because Jesus is always worth it. If Jesus isn't worth it, you won't put up with any of this or things similar. But if Jesus is worth it, if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe, 
By great endurance, you'll press ahead in whatever it is for the sake of His kingdom, for the sake of His glory. Now, think about endurance. You can endure something and be really upset about it. You can be resentful. You can be self-righteous about it. You can endure with kind of a self-centered, joyless, angry, bitter spirit. Okay, I'm serving the Lord. I'm living my life. I can't believe this is what I have to endure. Can't believe this is what I have to put up with. And you just have this angry, self-centered spirit. But you know what? I'm going to tough it out. I'll show everybody around me. I'm going to make it somehow, some way. That's not Paul's spirit of endurance. His is of a very different kind. And Paul endured not because he was tougher than most folks, but as the next items in the list will indicate, something very different. So I want you to notice the next eight items in this list of this blizzard of troubles. Uh, each one of the, of the next items in the list is also introduced by the preposition in. Although, like in my English Standard Version, the, the translators change it to by because you have in, in, in so many times. Let's kind of vary it for English stylistic purposes. But it's the same preposition. And what I want you to notice is, in what spirit does Paul endure? And what is the key to his endurance in all these kinds of things? So let's notice the next eight items in the list. By great endurance in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in truthful speech, in the power of God. Let's just look at the first two. In purity and in knowledge, his conduct was above board in all things. And his message was grounded in God's revelation, in the knowledge that God imparted to him by the Holy Spirit. And then you notice, what was the character of his endurance? You notice in patience, in kindness. It wasn't in bitterness. It wasn't in, I can't believe this is what I have to go through. And you're really bitter and upset and joyless of heart. But he endured what he did in patience and in kindness. Patience is the ability to endure injuries and hostilities without responding in anger. We heard that in what Anthony read from the Sermon on the Mount this morning, didn't we? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He endured it with patience. And then kindness is the flip side of the coin, then treating others. Not only do you not respond with anger and bitterness, but you actively treat others in a positive way, in a gracious way. What else does Paul say? His endurance is marked by genuine Love, that love is, translates the word agape, a self-giving, self-sacrificing, not what I can get out of it, but others-oriented love. I endure with that kind of spirit, the love that Jesus, for God so loved the world, that word is agape. It's that kind of love, that love of God that fills me. And in truthful speech, I speak in a straightforward, clear manner. Now, if you think about these things, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, agape, love, truth, all of these things are characteristics of who God is, aren't they? And, and all of these things reflect the fruit of the Spirit. You'll notice some of these items you find in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Okay, some of these things are reflected in this list right, right here that Paul has in this text. 
But I want you to notice in the midst of all these things, so his endurance was not of a bitter, self-pitying kind, but it was marked by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, love, and truthful speech. You notice in the middle of it is a person. Don't miss that in the middle of the list. In the Holy Spirit. That's the key. That's why Paul ministered and endured as he did. And you notice how the list ends in the power of God. It's because the power of God was active in his life and ministry that he was able to endure with the right spirit whatever came his way. And Paul continues that thought. Notice end of verse 7 into the first part of verse 8. There are three clauses, each which begin with the preposition through. So notice how Paul is equipped for all things. What does he say? Through the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Paul says, I endure because of the Spirit of God in my life, the power of God, and guess what? He's given me all the weaponry I need. Book of Ephesians. And you notice, I, I think what Paul's talking about here, he talks about weapons for the right hand and for the left. In your right hand, you've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In your left hand, you have the shield of faith, by which you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. So Paul says, I have God's Holy Spirit. I have God's power. I have weaponry for the right hand and for the left hand. That's why I endure. That's how I endure. And so Paul says, I have that provision of God that sustains me no matter how I'm treated. And you notice, whether it is honor or dishonor, doesn't matter. I am sustained no matter what is said about me, especially behind my back, slander, praise, whatever it is. I am equipped by God to endure with the right spirit. And then Paul draws his text to a close with seven antithetical statements, paradoxes. And each one of them begins with the word as. And Paul in each of these is setting forth a contrast. He starts with the negative in each of these contrasts. The way people look at him on the outside. How do they view him? What do they think about him? So Paul starts with that. Because some of the perceptions of his enemies, even in the church in Corinth, were rather negative. Now, some of the negative things that were said about Paul, or people thought about it, um, were totally false. Others were true, actually, in part. But Paul says, however people view me, whatever people's perceptions of me are, it's not the whole truth about who I really am and about my life and ministry. So let's notice these seven antithetical statements. How are we treated? You notice end of verse 8. We're treated seven ways. As imposters, but what's the reality? And yet are true. I'm looked at as a false apostle. I'm looked at one who is self-appointed. I'm looked at one who is deceptive who is dishonest, not to be trusted. That's what many people say about me, Paul says. But the reality is, I'm regarded as an imposter, yet I am true. Who I say I am, that is actually who I am. 
The message that I bring is not my own. It's not self-invented. It's heaven sent. Notice the second one. As unknown and yet well-known. Here's the second paradox. Now, the first part actually is true. You think about in Paul's day, in the Roman Empire, the vast Roman Empire, all around the world, how many people knew about Paul next to nobody? Pretty much unknown. And those who knew him didn't have much to do with him, many people. They disregarded his message. He was ignored by the world at large. And so you're a nobody, people would say. And so Paul says, I am unknown. Yes, that's true, actually, in many ways. But guess what? I'm yet well known. Who is the one who knows me? God. So whether people know me, understand I'm well-known by my Lord and Savior. As unknown and yet well-known. There's the paradox. Notice the third one. As dying, and behold, we live. The dying part, again, is true. You remember in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul makes reference to an affliction he had in the province of Asia where he said, I despaired of life itself. It was that serious. You think about the times he was left for dead, the book of Acts says, because he was stoned. Times he was beaten. Dying? You bet. As dying, but guess what? Behold, here I am, Paul says. I am alive. I continue to minister. Notice the next one. As punished and not yet killed. People looked at Paul and what you're going through is because God's unhappy with you. There were those in Paul's day that were like Joel Osteen, the deceiver of our day. You know, where if you have a relationship with God, everything will go well, sickness will disappear, your finances will be in order, the health and wealth garbage that people like him proclaim. There were those in Paul's day who said, if you really belong to the Lord, you're not going to get sick, you're not going to be in jail, you're not going to be beaten up, you'll be a success in your business, all these different things. And look at you, you're punished. God's angry with you. He's obviously punishing you and is pretty evident to all of us. Now, Paul certainly wouldn't deny that God brought discipline into his life. What does the book of Hebrews say, by the way? If we belong to the Lord, each one who is a true believer experiences discipline from God. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you're never disciplined, you're not a child of God. The writer says... And so Paul says, yes, there are things in my life that are incredibly difficult. It looks as though I'm being punished. But guess what? Whatever happens, I press on. I rest in God's purposes. I'm not killed. I'm not a done away with. Whatever God allows into my life, whatever he brings into my life, I trust in him. So whatever punishment comes, it doesn't destroy me, Paul says. And then this one. A paradigm for the Christian life. Uh, John Piper quoted that in that paragraph that I read at the beginning of the sermon. He says, this is what the Christian life looks like. This is what a worship service should look like. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul experienced a lot of sorrows in his life. There are many of you who have experienced the same. So what do those sorrows do to you? Do they grab hold of you on the inside and enchain your soul and spirit where you can never get away and things go from bad to worse? 
and you struggle with depression and you struggle with the weight of all these things. No, Paul experienced times of grief in his ministry. Co-workers deserted him. Converts turned against him. There were times where he was sick and didn't seem to get well. He had a thorn in the flesh. His work was threatened in various ways. I thought of the phrase of the hymn writer who said, Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You're real about what comes into your life, but it doesn't bind you, it doesn't destroy you, it doesn't define you because you are defined by the Lord Jesus Christ, His presence, His grace in your life. And there is a deep-seated joy. In the midst of sorrow, there is still a deep-seated joy. That's a paradox, isn't it? But that joy is not some kind of cheap, superficial happiness. It's an inner contentment that's dependent on who Jesus is, not on who I am or what's happening to me at the present moment. Well, notice number six of seven. Here's a paradox. As poor, yet making many rich. The poor part was absolutely true because Paul didn't have anything. He didn't have... Money, didn't have possessions, those kinds of things. But the paradox is, having nothing, he enriched everybody that he interacted with. What kind of riches did Paul impart? It's the kind that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew. The kind of riches, the treasure you lay up in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal, the way Jesus puts it. That's the kind of treasure. Paul, to the Ephesians, writes these words, Ephesians 3.8. He says, I offer to you the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so Paul, outwardly poor, yet by the message of heaven that he brought, enriching everybody to the greatest imaginable extent. And then in the final antithesis, he sums up everything he has said. As having nothing, true, yet owning everything, possessing everything. To the outsider, as I said a moment ago, Paul was destitute. No home, no money, no possessions, no retirement, no health insurance. He was hated, he was hunted. He proclaimed a message that was offensive to Jews, a message that was despised by Gentiles. But yet possessing everything. Listen to these words from the end of 1 Corinthians 3. He's trying to help the Corinthians understand this. He says to them, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's pretty all-encompassing. So whatever you and I have or don't have, when we are in Christ, we are possessor of all things, Paul says to the Corinthians in the first letter. Ah, you know, those who, those who buy into this age, those outside of Christ, who put all their resources into this age, never really possess what they pay for. Because in the end, it's all gone. It's all temporal. It's all ephemeral like mist in the morning that is gone quickly. Only the things that are presently unseen are the things that last. They have weight. They have value. 
They are eternal. And so this life for you and me, as I said at the beginning of the message, is marked by troubles and trials. Maybe for you even this morning, it's a blizzard of them, to quote the ancient preacher. But through it all, there is indeed a love that will not let you go. There is a light which illumines each step of your pilgrimage. There is a joy that seeks you out through pain. There is a cross, yes, that lifts up your head, but out of death, out of dying to self, maybe even your dreams and aspirations, life is born in beautiful abundance. And so through it all, whatever you're facing this morning, whatever you haven't shared with somebody perhaps, things of recent time, wait from weeks ago, months ago, maybe even some years, things that just, oh, they just weigh upon you. Is that through it all, when you are anchored in Christ, whatever it is, you can say with great confidence, it is well with my soul. I trust that's true for each one of you. Let's pray. Lord, um, we don't have weather forecasters telling us when the blizzard of troubles is going to sweep in. I mean, we're caught unawares a lot of the time. And the troubles come and we can be swept away. We can be buried by them. We can become angry, resentful. We can collapse or by the sustaining power of your spirit and the weapons for the right hand and the left hand, we can endure in the right spirit all that comes our way. We endure things that humanly we cannot endure. But by your grace and spirit, we do endure to the glory of your name. And so, Lord, for any brother or sister here who is struggling with whatever's in this list, something specifically in this list or something in this list that jogs memory of something else. That you are sufficient for every trial and storm that comes. And it doesn't matter what other people think about us. It doesn't matter how they look at us, how they talk about us. That doesn't matter. If we have that treasure of Christ your Son and the hope that is anchored in Him, by your grace, like Paul, we can say, I have greatly endured because I have a Savior, because I have a God who loves and cares, because I have the presence of God's Holy Spirit in my very heart and life. Grant us strength, even this week, in all things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.